As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the last in our four-part podcast series, How to Win a Grand Slam. I'm Owen Slot, Chief Rugby Correspondent of The Times, and for the last time here we are looking at success in the Six Nations. How and why is it that some nations sometimes just get it all right? My guest today is John Rutherford, one of the absolute best, a giant in his time. When he started as Scotland fly half in 1979, Scotland hadn't won a Grand Slam for 54 years. In his sixth season of asking, they finally got it done. John, great to see you. Owen, lovely to be here. I had a great train journey up. You came from Selkirk? Yes. So uh so you're still the Selkirk man through and through? (laughs) Yeah, I think I'll probably be carried out of Selkirk, but... Uh, I did have a spell in Edinburgh. I was I was a school teacher at Watson's, mm-hmm. and I did actually teach the Hastings boys, which probably a lot of people don't know. And I finished up playing in the same team. But uh, no, back in Selkirk, uh, v- very happy, and still got a good connection with the the local club. In fact, I am their uh, membership secretary, Owen. So I'll be expecting you to be a member by the end of this okay well, if that's a deal then fine so so listen for our listeners i just want to describe the man sitting uh, in front of me so uh, john you're 64 i am you've got pretty much all your hair <laughs> though it is white it's gray yeah okay gray well whichever yeah <clears throat> you're looking very healthy yeah uh, which is a, a, a poignant point in itself isn't it because it, two it years is. ago you weren't Oh, unfortunately, two years ago, uh, my uh, wee brother died of prostate cancer, and he was living in Spain at the time, and it was actually really nice for, I've got an older brother, and we we actually spent the last month in Spain with Billy, Uh, so we're really quite close, but when I got back, my GP, who's the the doctor for the rugby club, he said, right, I want to get you tested, John, because this stuff... Uh, tends tends to um, be in uh, family, so I, I, I said, "Look, his name is Jeff. Jeff, I'm fine. I'm fit. I go to the gym. I don't smoke. You know, I like a beer, but I'm not a big drinker." He said, "It doesn't matter. I mm. want to get you tested." So I went along and got the test, and they, they took ten cuts from the prostate, and eight of them had cancer. So. Uh, I had to make a big decision. So it was a very difficult year that, Owen. But I've got through it. I'm clear. I get tested quarterly, but I really feel great and I feel blessed that 
you know, because I've lost a lot of friends with cancer mm. and I've lost friends with, uh, with uh, prostate cancer and I really feel as if I've been one of the lucky ones. Oh, well, good for you in that respect. But uh, uh, you th- you're throwing out the other side, you think? Yes, uh-huh. there is a possibility that it can come back and that, that's why I'm tested uh, every, every, every uh, three months. But at the moment, it's looking good. Can you still kick a spiral of 50, 60 yards? This is a funny story. I got a call from a father, and uh, his son's quite a promising uh, player. So I went down to Philip Hawk. The Selkirk ground. Selkirk, yes. I said, right, uh, so I got all the balls out. So This is just I, recently? This is only maybe two months ago. Right? Fantastic. And, uh, so I was watching him kicking, and his technique wasn't great. I said, right, look, I just want you to watch this. I pulled my hamstring. <laughs> First kick on. I, I, I couldn't demonstrate anything afterwards, so uh, it was a bit difficult. So could I kick a ball 60 metres? No, six metres now, maybe. <laughs> when, when was the last time you just did a place kick, a conversion kick just for fun, yeah. just to go, well, this, is, this is what I used to be quite good kids, at? When my kids were playing mini rugby, right. school rugby, okay. I, I'd get in and... Uh, we were lucky to have a big garden uh, at the house, and it was always Murrayfield, Twickenham one day, Wembley sometimes as well. So we played a lot of sport in the garden. Excellent. John, we're going to sort of go back to the 70s, 80s, when, when you were playing your rugby. And do you get told a lot, do you meet people a lot who say to you, how bloody good you were back in the day. I, I'm sure you're not going to say, yes, I was outstanding, but you were a peerless number 10 in your time. There were some people who said that you're arguably the best in the world in your time, and you're sitting here nodding, not quite sure what to yeah. say. But do you get that <laughs> well, a lot? When I stopped playing, yes, a lot, a lot of people would come up to me in the street. But it's much nicer now. You know, you're, because I'm 64, I'm probably not recognised by uh, younger people. But I had a lovely experience. I went to an Edinburgh game recently and I was sitting having dinner with a, a couple of Selkirk lads and this gent came over. He, he just said, look, I just want to shake your hand. I was your biggest fan and I can't believe I'm standing here mm-hmm. speaking to you. And I, I'm sure players of my vintage have had this, a similar experience. And it's really nice, Owen, because, you know, you do forget that, you know, we used to strut our stuff on the international pitches and, you know, you put on a bit of weight and you think, God, was I really out there? But, I mean, that is 35 years ago. So it's lovely when people come up and still recognise you. Good, good for you. But you were, when you were a kid, you wanted to be Barry John, correct? I did, I did. I uh, I always thought if I could play rugby like, like him and I, I recall vividly, Cardiff were playing Gala, and Gala would have been probably the top side in Scotland at the time, and Cardiff were up playing, and I was pitch side, and I was five metres away from Barry How old would you have been? I would have probably been about maybe 12, 13 at the time. But I've got a lovely story years later, Owen. It might have been my first or second game down in Cardiff, and after the game, we were sitting in the Angel Hotel, and we were met, it was it was a few Welsh boys, a few Scottish boys, we were having a beer, and there was a tap on my shoulder, and I turned round and it was Barry John, who uh, I'd never met before, and he was my hero, 
and I stood up and bowed. <laughs> I just felt that was the appropriate thing to do because he'd been ah, s- such a big person in my life. And uh, Barry couldn't have been nicer. Uh, so I met him all these years later. Oh, fantastic. Uh, fantastic. When you were coming through and breaking into the Scotland team, so you made your debut in 79... What was rugby like then? I mean, we, we, we're you so used to the professional age. I just wonder if you could paint a picture of, I don't know, wait, how often did you train? Yeah. Uh, how did you find out if you were in right. the team? You know, everything was... Oh, and it, 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 was, it was, well, I, I seem very amateurish. It was totally uh, amateurish. But at the top, players did take things seriously. And I, I was lucky I was a PE teacher, so... I did understand about uh, conditioning. So at that time, I would have probably done something most days. I would have been in the gym certainly twice a week. You would have your club training on a Tuesday, Thursday. Now, once you get into into the Scotland squad, you used to train Sundays. So it was club game on a Saturday, and then the squad would meet at Murrayfield on the Sunday. And we had tough coaches, you know, people like, Jim Telfer, Derek Grant, Nairn McEwen, who was, who was my first coach. And they were very aware that we, we, we didn't have huge numbers of players in Scotland and we weren't the biggest of teams, so we had to be fit. And I do remember doing a heck of a fitness work. So I think Scotland were possibly ahead of their time mm. in, t- in terms of uh, conditioning and fitness and we did we we ma- when we were playing we always had a good last 20 minutes which was a sign that we were fit and we when we played the the, the best sides we could always hang on in there mm. and a lot of that was to do with uh, your conditioning but you would train in where would you train up here in Edinburgh yeah well I, I, I was working at Watson's College sure so okay. there was great facilities but you would have played for training. Selkirk on a Saturday I did uh-huh. and then the day after you'd be training yeah. which you'd, by well, modern parlance just sat there you go you're you, nuts you know? I couldn't have played for anyone else I was certainly asked but my dad was on the committee my mum was a tea lady my two brothers played for the team so if I if I left Selkirk uh, I don't think anybody was spoken to me again so that's why I've really had a lifelong association with the club and and um, when the Scotland thing started happening how long before a game would the team gather yeah. and well the rule the rules at that time were you could only meet two days before the game so teams would meet up on the Thursday and that's where you did most most of your work but Owen, there'd be very little analysis. You'd maybe be lucky to get 10 minutes watching your opponents play. When you think of the analysis that's done on on matches now, but because uh, all teams were the same, it was kind of equal. So you went, you went out and... Could you not have watched the whole of, a, of the match of the, your opponents beforehand? Not I mean, one, not there really. Was a, you know, there was VHS. You could have recorded <laughs> it, John. Yeah, you, you did. But I think probably Roy Laidlaw and I, we maybe did a wee bit more than other other players. Yeah, just but, stop you there, because that's uh, the first mention of oh, Roy, who's he's kind of your twin brother, baby yeah, brother or whatever, yeah. little brother. You, you and Roy played, you, your careers spanned... The years did. together. Mm-hmm. I think you had 35 tests together. He was 90 or 10. Yeah. Well, 
Oh, and you know, we all we, like to think that your best buddies. Ha, oh, we 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 were very close, Roy. There's incredible similarities between the two of us in that one of our parents came from Glasgow, married a border lass. He's the middle son of three brothers. I'm the I'm the same, and we both went on to have three sons. Hmm. The, the story story goes on, and we we really played as a half-back partnership from 18 uh, onwards. So we knew each other. People like myself would like to imagine that you and Roy still meet twice a week and spin a ball and... Yeah, uh, and, and... Yeah. Oh, and it's not... He still lives in Jed and we would play, certainly in the summer, we'd play golf every couple of weeks. Right. And we would speak on the phone probably every week. Yeah, so... Who, no, who, who wins the golf? Close. Because you know, he used he to be is, teammates. I mean, this is awful to think you sneaky. compete against each other. He's very sneaky. I, I would say, um, without being too uh, arrogant here, I, I'd say I was the better golfer, but he's been getting lessons. Not good, Owen. And he's improving. And the last That's, time is, he did, is, is, the that, last time he did beat me. <laughs> is that you're allowed to have lessons if you come from the amateur code, from, from the amateur days? Well, you're right. That's not right at Ex- all, is it? Exactly. Building up to sort of the the, the mid eighties, so you made your your debut in uh, in seventy nine. You were a teacher. I was just looking at the at the results. That eighty three, the um, Scotland team won one Six Nations game, one of the four Six Nations games. So there's no real indication that you're a a team that's on the turn about to come really good. Did, did nevertheless you think that that you played um, international rugby five years before 1984 yeah. came around? Did you feel that you were a team about to go somewhere? We did, Owen, and it, it's it probably goes back a couple of years. Uh, Jim Telford took over coaching the team, and he took us to New Zealand and Australia, and you. These were tough tours, but we nearly beat the All Blacks in Dunedin. In fact, we should have beaten them. And that was in 82? That was in 81. Mm-hmm. In 81. And we played really well. We we got a bit of a doing the, the second test. But I think, I think we still scored two or three tries in the second test. So we came back from that tour and we got a lot of confidence from it. And then the next again summer, we... Went to Australia and they were. That was when Bob Dwyer took over, mm-hmm. and we had a really interesting tour there. We we beat Australia in the first test, but lost in the in, in the second test. And then the next again year, there was eight of us toured with the Lions to New Zealand, so that was more or less half the team, and. Although, again, we, we got a bit of doing of the All Blacks, we managed to talk Jim into because I think Jim was ready to walk away from rugby after that tour. But the senior players said, look, we think we've got a team that could win the Grand Slam. And I, I think generally Scottish players lack a wee bit of confidence, maybe that other nations have. But yeah. when you've been on a Lions tour, you, you get to know your opposition really well. You know, you've got, you're with them for... 12, 14 weeks, I can't remember how long that tour was. And at the end of it, you, you think, well, there's eight of us here, we've got some good players. But, I mean, David Leslie never made that tour, and he was probably the outstanding number seven in the four countries. So we talked Jim into it, and we thought, we've got a real chance. Just from that yeah. 1983 tour, yeah. you say you got to know the other players well. Mm-hmm. 
but that did that sort of persuade you that you were as good as them? And yes, that, yes, oh, and, and that's what I'm saying. I, I, I do so, believe. So, so awesome reputations. You kind of yeah, go, well, actually, the, we're yeah, all human around here. That's right. And I found out when we met in London. We did. We had to do a bit of fitness testing, and you know the Scottish boys were pretty close to being the best. We had a good tour, and I think we we gained a lot of confidence from it. And then we played the All Blacks in the November before that season and we drew 25 all with mm. them. We probably should have won that game. Peter Dodds, who, who was a fantastic goal kicker, missed a conversion that would have been our first ever win against the All Blacks. So, well, that that, that must have been the, 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 the proof in the pudding, if you like, yeah. that you're, you were ready to go. There was a team there. But yeah. I love the idea that, that you thought about this, you thought that this is, this could be our year, and, and so much so that you took Telfer aside and yeah. said, we need you to stay. We did, we did. And, uh, you know, fortunately for everybody, Jim stayed on, and it was really brilliant for Jim because he deserved something like a Grand Slam for what he put into rugby and... I mean, when he first took over the team, we were a soft touch. That, that's the truth. He turned us into men, really. And particularly at Murrayfield, we became a team that was very hard to beat at home. And, and was he... Um, could, could you tell that he was ahead of his time? I mean, he's, he's one of the great coaches in, in British world rugby, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He was ahead of his time. He had the team rucking so well. Oh, and it was just such a treat to play behind a pack like that and they could create really quick ball and for guys like Roy and our back row we, Scotland at that time had probably eight or nine back row players mm. that could could have fitted into the national team Did he put the crackle of fear into you as well? Because oh, he did have a bit of that didn't he? Oh, oh and you just I, I remember Jim Calder <laughs> telling me, Jim was one of the he was number six in that team was sitting having a beer after one of the games and he said you know I made a mistake out there and the first thing I thought about was Telford's got to bring this up at the team meeting this is during a game <laughs> and uh, he was he was very good motivator and he knew he, he could pick a new and, but the players would have a good laugh as, uh, as well but he, he was a terrific motivator and before the Irish game the Friday night that was the Triple Crown game he He's very clever. We had uh, a team meeting and he says, right, I'm going to have my tea. I want you to watch this tape. And the south of Scotland, who had 11 players Mm. in that team, we had played the All Blacks and been hammered at gala. And he had the highlights of that game. (laughs) So just to bring our... uh, feet back to the ground again he, he made he made us watch this so he was a psychologist as well as a coach well, how did that make you feel to watch well it was really to get your feet back in the ground yeah and then the next again day would start to build build you up again and but do you know you were, you were, we were speaking earlier and you're saying you know what, what does it take to win a grand slam you need a team coming together at the one time I think you need units in the team, Owen, that are playing really well together. Like we, with that terrific back row, we had Ian Milne, who's possibly the best tight head in the world at that time. Colin Deans, with a good captain in Aitken, experienced halfbacks, and a lot of speed. Mm. David Johnston, Keith Robertson, guys like that, Peter Dodds, they were, they were quick. But the other thing you need is a massive dollops of luck. 
Mm. And I'm sh- I'm sure the, the the other former players that you interview will say the same thing. But, and I- but the, we, we've got to sort of slightly set this in context. I love the idea that you thought about this and you said this this could be yeah. our year. But Scotland hadn't even won a triple crown since 1938. No, and. No Grand Slam since 1925. Yeah. So you you were doing something, or you you were attempting something that you thought you could achieve something that was very very special. I just got this quote from Jim Telf, which you probably know very well. Which after you've done it, he said it was like reaching the South Pole. It hadn't been done by almost any living Scotsman. I mean, that's right. It was, it was 1938, special. wasn't it? Yeah. The the last team that won the Grand Slam. 1925, the previous teams was the last, it? Yeah, it was 30, 38 was the crown. last triple yeah. crown. Having toured with these players and having played so many many games with them, and we had a style of play that was very difficult to play against, and we knew we had a good chance, especially with gym coaching. But you still need a lot of luck going. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Can you remember the time or the era, if you like, of just... (laughs) Torval and Dean won a gold medal while you were in the middle of your Grand Slam. That was Bolero. Um, Is that right? Yeah, Frankie Goes to Holly was no, were, were number one with uh, with Relax for most of the time that uh, that, that Six Nations went on. Um, Greenham Common was uh, was full of uh, of objectors. <laughs> can can, can yeah. you what, what, what was there? What was on on your minds then? Apart from uh-huh. this, yeah. was it just that? Well. I think when you're playing at that level, you, you are a bit of a rugby nut. And uh, personally speaking, I, I was I was pretty focused on rugby and becoming a better player. And so, really, mo- most of the time, you you, you were although, although we were amateurs, I, I think we were probably rugby boars as well. <laughs> okay, well, good for you. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, you had full time jobs as well. Did you feel that you were you know, ten years later? Players started to feel that you. were um, having unfair expectations and demands placed on you because you were effectively being a professional in your working life and in your rugby life. Did you feel that at all, or did you just feel a pleasure to be? I was, to I was, I was very lucky in that uh, I had the kind of job where I could keep myself pr- pretty fit. Be, be, being a PE teacher and uh, I had a good school who allowed me time off. Whereas people like, well, Roy, for instance, Owen. He was an electrician in Jed, and it was very difficult for He worked for a small business. Hmm. So for him to go on tour, which could be five five or six weeks in the summer, he would have to go uh, unpaid. And I actually remember... So he'd lose yeah, hundreds, hundreds of pounds. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, remember Roy telling me... That no, the, no, no one made that up. The, the SIU didn't say, if you're touring for us, we'll... No, make up the deficit. You got, if my memory serves me right, when you got a fiver a day, <laughs> you did in uh, expenses. But they used to have a whip round Jed Forest Rugby Club for Roy, so that he had a bit of money to uh, spend spend on tour. But that that's just what it was like. I, I was fortunate in that you know my employers 
paid me and gave me the time off. And the school holidays, presumably. Yeah, but a lot of the time it didn't coincide no. uh, with school holidays. That was just the way it was, and it'd be it'd be the same in uh, all, all the different nations. Then first up in 1984 in in the, in the Five Nations, um, you played Wales away at Cardiff. Did you feel that day one we're, we're, we're at the start of a big project here? And was that very much in your minds? Yep. Well, it sounds simple. But you've got to get off to a winning start. Yeah. And I do recall we were quite a nervous team, but we had played Wales two years before and we had we had probably played as good a game as that team had and we we beat Wales five tries to one. So we'd got over this not being able to win uh, down there. We were probably a better side than Wales, but they had some really good individual players. Mm-hmm. And what I do remember, and this is what I'm... I'm I was talking about earlier that you need, you need a dollop of luck. We were defending our line desperately at the end of the game and they had a scrum half. I think his name was Mark Douglas and he was a big physical scrum half, a bit like Terry Holmes. And he went round the blind side with probably seconds to go and he dropped the ball over the line. <laughs> so Stuart Hogstyle. Stuart Hogg. Well, I, I think he had Roy hanging on to his legs. Just to bring that into the modern age. Oh, so what, not as bad as Stuart Hogg then. No, but, they, you know, they, they, the first, first dollop of luck was um, Mark drop, dropping the yeah, ball over the yeah. line because I think that might have, with the conversion, drawn us level. But it got us off to a winning start. Mm-hmm. And they, So then, then you have England at home. And I, I'm just interested in, in the sort of the... The, the social history, if you like, because six years later there was another Scottish Grand Slam, which was completed at Murrayfield against England in a in the very very famous grudge match. David Soul walking out, yeah. Will Carling, Margaret Thatcher, poll tax, <laughs> all the history, all yeah. the history, and, and 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 it was an extraordinary time. The way it's recounted, anyway, is is the players, the Scottish team at the time, were were hugely motivated by nation and nationality and politics if you like and them and us and mm-hmm. uh, and you, your team in 84 did you have a driving force like that did you no. have did you have that it, we don't it, like you know thing? we got on great with english lads the ones in the alliance too like peter winterbottom uh clive clive woodward mm. was on that tour john carlton dust dusty hair they were great blokes and uh i probably got on better with english lads than any other nation so no, there was there was it, it was a, obviously Scotland England. It's, it's a big game, hmm. but it was nothing like that uh, nineteen ninety game. And we uh, England were good. I think that team had beaten the All Blacks. Now we had drawn with the All Blacks, yeah. so they were a for, formidable side. But it was a wet and windy one, and we uh, the way England played their two wingers uh, John Carlton and Mike Sleman both fantastic players they they laid very flat and it gave us acres of room to put the ball behind them so you were kicking in behind them in behind them and we put a lot of pressure on Dusty that game and we had great I mean we had Guys like David Johnston and I think Steve Monroe probably played that game with Roger Roger Baird he, he mm. was a talent and we just put a lot of pressure on England they were trying to play probably a wee bit too much rugby with the with the uh, conditions and we got quite a lucky try David Johnston had a 
he had a kick and chase try. Second half, we scored a good try. You and Kennedy, and we're, yeah, I think over the piece we were, we probably played the conditions better. But dollop of luck, we got the conditions that suited Scotland and not England. There's a, a, a line that I found in um, the uh-huh. book that you co-wrote with <laughs> Roy Laidlaw. This, this is Roy Laidlaw writing this chapter, um, and, and he's talking about you kicking in behind Carlton and, and, and Mike Slemon. Um, and, and he said, John's tormenting of dusty hair that afternoon compounded the sorrows of that great servant of Leicester who had so unhappy a day with his goal kicking that his wife, for the first time since they were married, could bear to watch no longer and slipped quietly from the ground. I think that's right. I think, I think dusty... <laughs> I love the way he expressed that. Dusty hair would have been the greatest goal kicker of his generation. And I, I think he missed six or seven kicks that day. So but again, the, the conditions yeah. were horrendous. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's the second game. Ireland were third, and we were looking at the possibility of a triple crown. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of excitement around about that between the two games. The Ireland game, you won quite easily. Yeah, well, but the scoreboard suggests so anyway. Yeah, I think they won the toss, and there was there was a, a bit of a gale force wind going on, and they Will, Willie Duggan decided to play into it, which probably was the wrong thing to do we were extremely motivated and we managed to well laid lost corner Roy scored two tries the the first half and we, we in, in that corner that in, then became known in that corner laid lost corner it was mm. inc- I don't know how many tries he scored there if you included his games with the Scotland A but a lot and it gave us a good buff at half time and then Ireland as you'd expect really came at us the second half and we defended well and we pulled... I think we scored five tries in that game. The last two were really quite good team uh, team tries. But we lost Roy at half-time. It's a concussion, didn't he? he, he yeah. Yeah. This is quite a story. Uh, my Selkirk half-back partner, Gordon Hunter, was the reserve. Mm-hmm. Roy was taken off with concussion, but you weren't allowed to say that word. It was athlete's migraine. <laughs> uh, really? Uh, yes. Yeah, so concussion was that was your two weeks. You had to take a compulsory two weeks off, and it became even <laughs> more important because Gordon Hunter, who was the clear number two to Roy, running off the pitch at the end, collided with a supporter, fractured his cheekbone. So, from having our two best scrum halves, you had none. With none at the end of the game. So <laughs> we were all out in the lash, winning the triple crown. Poor Roy spent the night in hospital, but we were very aware of not not saying the c word, so we could get Roy back for the following week, where we played France in the Grand Slam decider. So <laughs> concussion was a controversy even in those days. It, well, nothing like now. Yeah, no. I mean, there was no concussion checks, but I mean, Roy was knocked out. Yeah. Uh, when, when you done when you achieve that triple crown, which as you said was the first for decades, was there any sense of rest on your laurels with with, with, with this is a great achievement? I mean. You could have taken the foot off the pedal at that stage. Yeah. I don't know what your where your heads were in that, but I did it. I did read that some SRU blazers were thinking, "Well, that's all right. We're, that's enough." Well, th- that might have happened with committee, but no. Uh, this is where Jim Aitken, who, who was a very underrated captain, he was really good, and you know he spoke after the game about Luke. 
you know, we've got the triple crown, let's go for the big one now, we'll have a good week of training and same and, and same with Jim Telfer. Uh, but again, Owen, we only got together on uh, Thursday. Right. And uh, So when you say good week of training, you actually yeah, mean a good day and a half of training. Correct. But we rested <coughs> up well and made, made sure if, if you had uh, an injury that you, you were uh, seen to and rehab properly the Leading up to the, th- the Thursday, and for the the Grand Slam game against France, I mean, France were they were the big dogs at the time, weren't they? They were the, they well, were generally the, the best team in the, in they, the Five they, Nations at that time. They were fantastic. Their back division, who I could I could almost name, Gali in the scrum half, f- fantastic player. Yeah, uh, Les Kabura, who you know, I thought I could kick a ball. Add another twenty meters on. He he was he was a good player, but what a huge kicker! Mm-hmm. And then Cordon you and Sela in the centre, mm-hmm. Esteve, Blanco, Blanco at the uh, back. I, I can't remember who the other winger was, but they would have been far away the best backline probably in the world at that time. And, and did you did you as a Scotland team feel like you were underdogs? Were you punching above your yes. weight? Was that sort of the mentality you it had? It was. It was. We we knew that. We had to be right on top of our game, and they had to be just a little bit off. You hope that you get the big decisions, yeah. and we probably did. And probably the the biggest incident that helped us was Gallian got carted, I think, just before halftime. Courtesy of a David Leslie shoulder, I think. Carted as in carted off, yeah. not carded as in... No, 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 <laughs> no, no. Uh, and Gallian had just scored... And he was uh, in full flow, class, class player, Owen. But unfortunately, he hit David Leslie's shoulder, and he was, he was uh, <laughs> most fortuitous for collision. I know, I know. But and that really hit. Although Berbizi was a very good replacement, but there were still, I would say, over the piece, they were a better side than us. Oh, but, really? Yes, you could tell. Yep. Yeah, you really. Physically, they were strong and um, just quick, and just playing at a different pace than us. But we just that, that team knew how to get over the line, and we took every chance that came our way. And so you were a good match playing team then. We were, we were. We, we took our chances. With Peter Dodds was an outstanding goal kicker, Owen. And you he, got into their heads a bit as well. Yes, and and the last ten minutes they kind of lost the plot. You could almost tell that we were going to win the game. They were doing crazy things. Like? Uh, well, penalties, giving away penalties, obstruction. Um, Blanco, who I would have to say was a great player, he, he did a couple of daft things. And, and it allowed us to s- stay in their 22 for the last 10 minutes. Mm. So they, they just couldn't get out of the 22. And, of course, the crowd were cheering us on. And we just weren't going to let that lead go and as it happened you know we we came off and <laughs> incredible <laughs> so go on I mean was best rugby day of your life or yeah absolutely <clears throat> it was very um, emotional I would say because we knew we'd done something special the supporters didn't normally run onto the pitch but I mean the pitch you, you couldn't see a blade of grass it was just <laughs> surrounded and no, it was. It was. It was really special and big dinner at night. To be fair, the French boys they were they were excellent at the, at the dinner. There was, these were big occasions <clears> the <throat> after, after match functions. Fantastic. Uh, but here it is. Back to work on Monday. 
<laughs> back to school on Monday. Everybody back to work. <laughs> Fantastic. And then uh, you just had to get on, get on with your life. So it was a, actually poor Roy again. There was a famous story on Monday. Jim Aitken organised a lunch in Edinburgh for all the team and the coaches, and. Roy was the only person that didn't make it. Because he was at work. Because he was at work. And his job that day, when was rewiring the public toilets in Jed. <laughs> <laughs> and we were all out in Edinburgh. I think we'd all been given a day off by our employers. And uh, poor Roy, he was rewiring the toilets. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Uh, talking about the sort of the... Um, the fleeting nature of success and how it comes and how easily it can go. 84, you you, you win the, the Grand Slam, but 85, I think you lost all four. We did. So what, what, how do you go from great to not great? A lot of injuries. Quite a, f- a few of that team were struggling that way. But if if you looked at the scores in all these games, when they were really tight. So it just shows the margin, the, just the margins. It's a cliche, um, but margins are so tight. And... Absolutely. But every single <clears throat> game that Scotland played that season, they could have won. But whereas yeah. we won the four games the season before, yeah. we just we couldn't do it. But That's uh, really interesting. Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, I remember uh, myself that season, I really struggled with it, uh, with injury. That's, that's just rugby. And finally, if you're talking to Stuart Hoggle, one of the Six Nations captains today, how to win a Grand Slam, what do you say to them? Well, it's it's like I say all, all the way through the, this interview. You need a good team, but you need dollops of luck. So you need to take every opportunity that comes your way. And I think for Scottish teams, that's, that's the only way you can do it. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.